Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the shepherds here at Fullerton Free. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, then open them up to Matthew 6. We're picking up in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's that whole idea of forget what you've heard. It's that sense that the world teaches us certain things, certain values, certain ideas, and Jesus just takes a a portion and sits down with the disciples on on a mountain, and that's where you get the, the term, the Sermon on the Mount, and he just simply talks to them about values that are completely different than everything that the world has been uh has, has been giving us, teaching us uh, how we kind of just live with the, the way the world goes. Um, this morning's passage, as you've heard, is about not being anxious. And it's one of those commands that just simply stops and says, do not be anxious. And man, do we wish it was that simple, that we would just hear it and flip a switch and our anxieties would go away. But that's not the case. And because of that, Jesus spends a little more time actually unpacking that for us. So instead of just a simple thing, hey, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. He doesn't come up to anxiety and says, and just say, hey, don't be anxious. He literally comes up and says, don't be anxious. And then I want to talk to you about that a little bit of how not to be anxious. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And I have to tell you that I'm a, I'm an introvert, so even getting in front of people or in front of a camera and being up front makes me anxious. So this was a tough one for me to, to tackle this passage and, and to really trust the Lord and what he's saying in this, in these words. Uh, I want to begin with a story that comes out of, of Texas. There is a guy who had a, a problem with anxiety and worries, and he was all wrapped up about all of his worries. And so in the process, he decided, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to struggle with worriness and worrying all the time. And so what he did was he decided he was going to hire somebody who would take all the worries for him and that that person would worry and he wouldn't have to. And so it took a while to find somebody who would just take and worry about somebody else's problems but he eventually found a guy and he settled on the price that for $200,000 a year, this guy agreed to take on his worries and just to worry for him about everything. And so as they sat down and started talking through stuff and he said, well, here's some of my stuff. And he, he let him look at all the different things in his life and all the challenges, including his finances. And so the guy that had agreed to the job for 200,000, he stops and he looks at his finances and he goes, well, sir, where you you don't have two hundred thousand dollars here. How are you going to come up with the money to pay me? And he goes, "Well, that's your first worry." That is the idea, is that it's just simply there in front of us all the time. And I need you to know that even in the process of getting ready for this talk, it's like, all right, I, Darren asked me and he says, all right, would you take this passage here about not being anxious? And as I first started to read it and study it, it was like, yeah, I'll take it. And I really, I don't carry a ton of worry and dread and fear with me. I sometimes feel moments when I'm anxious, but I look at my life and mostly I don't feel that anxious about a lot of things. So I was trying to find examples of somebody else living in anxiety. 
And then uh, I'm literally sitting on the couch and I hear this knock on the door and the knock on the door, I go to the door and it literally is a postman and the postman has an envelope, a registered uh, letter. And in that registered letter is a, it's a, it's a statement from an attorney who says, look, years ago you sold a house and that house and how the contracts have worked and everything, the property line isn't exactly the way it was supposed to be. So you're on the hook for 25 thousand dollars. And I was like, wait, what? I didn't do anything wrong. And sure enough, we looked at the paperwork. I hadn't done anything wrong, but the way the contracts read is that I had signed some particular part of when you sign mortgage papers, they give you a stack of papers. And typically you're sitting there with a notary and the notary is going, oh yeah, just sign right here where the X is, flip one. This one tells, tells you this, sign that. This one says that, sign that. And apparently one of the ones I signed said that I agreed that the property that I was selling was exactly the way it was and, and I would be on the hook if it wasn't. So years later, somebody buys that property and they go back to find out that I'd signed this document and that that property had some kind of encroachment on it and I was on the hook for $25,000. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of set me back a little bit and I began to get anxious of where I would get the $25,000 and at that moment I thought, oh, thanks, Darren. This only happened because... You gave me this passage. I mean, if you would only given me a passage of how to deal with riches or wisdom or something like that, that might have worked out better. Now, really, when we look at this, this is the stuff of life. Anxiety, and, and we don't even have to think very hard right now to think about whether it's COVID, whether it's our business, whether it's the economy, whether it's the politics, whether it's just what's going on with, with life in general, health in general, finances in general, family issues in general. There's so many things in our life. And I, I could go on and give a list, but you have your own to where there's things in your life that are making you anxious, where your mind goes to, that gets your heart racing, that keeps you awake at night. And that's the concept that Jesus is talking talking about here when he says this. And right off the bat, so we're going to look at verses 25 to 34, the very first verse, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about all those things. And he goes on to give examples of what you will eat or what you will drink or about, uh, or nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, before we go on, I want you to stop and look at that very first word, therefore. And I think we've all heard the little uh, phrase that says, if you ever see the word therefore, you should look and see what it's there for. And in this case, it sets the context that therefore do not be anxious. He's saying this about the very things that we just heard about last Sunday as Darren talked through that whole concept of of what the real treasure is, what the real light is, and who our real king is. And because the world has turned everything upside down, we find ourselves concerned about the wrong things. And because of that, when we look at things like our treasures and the the moth, uh, rust, the thieves, people come in and steal it, it it just decays, that there's no value there and that will bring us anxiety. It will destroy us. It will eat away at us. We are going to find ourselves not living life the way we're supposed to. And so therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life because these things are wrong. The things the world says, you can't serve God and 
mammon. If you serve the mammon, it's going to just eat away at you. But if you serve God, it's going to be completely different. Therefore, don't be anxious then about your life. And he goes on to explain why. And that's the context that we start this off in. And and just so you know, right off the bat, we're going to do three of these therefores in this passage. Verse 25, verse 31, and verse 34 all begin with the word therefore. So they make a reference to that. And by the way, since there's only three, we're probably going to refer to them as the there three rather than the therefore. Um, That's bad. And and I'll just skip that in the next message. Um, Bottom line, um, do not be anxious. Uh, Now I'm anxious about this message. Here we go. Verse one, do not be anxious. Is this life not more than, and he goes on with this list, but it's a question. He stops and he says this. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or drink, what about your body, what you put on, is not life more than food and your body more than clothing? It's a question. And I'll give you a hint. The answer is yes. You don't have to think very hard about this one. But the question is not your life more than the food and the drink and the clothing. And the answer is yes. Your life is much more than that. And Jesus is saying that right off the bat, that these things that get us caught up, that we get all worked up about, are not the main thing of of who we are as as a human being, as a soul. And he says that right off the bat. You know this. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then the answer is yes, that's exactly right. Look at the birds, the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so closes, closes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This idea of when he says this, it, it, it gets your mind going for a second. It's like, all right, the birds, they don't even have to sow. They don't reap. And yet he feeds them. They don't even have to worry about it. They just get up. They wake up in the morning. They go fly and the food's out there somewhere and they've got to do that. So is Jesus saying, we don't have to work at anything. We can just live our life. Get up in the morning and everything is just hunky-dory and we just go forward that way. I want you to understand that what Jesus does next is after he says, do not be anxious, his next command is look, look and see. And that word is to consider, to think, and it's literally to look into the face of, to look intently. It's the idea that he's not asking us not to think and to put off all things and just live very carefree. He literally stops and says, don't be anxious. And here's why. Look at the things that I am about to tell you. There is some deep theology here. There are some principles here and it's all around you. In fact, what he's telling us, he's telling us to go outside, go outside side, look at creation and begin to think about what, what creation is teaching you. So he gives the birds, he gives the flowers, he talks about the grass of the field. He gives this illustration that when he says, do not be anxious, he tells us, literally commands us, go look at this, consider this, because there's truth and principles here that you need to pay attention to. 
And it's that idea that we're going to begin with in this very first, do not be anxious, that therefore do not be anxious. Life is more than what you eat or drink. And he says, therefore, um, go look, observe, notice that look, look intently at these things. The first, uh, this concept of the truth and the principles are there is this idea that even with the birds, they neither sow nor reap, but that God is intimately engaged in the smallest details. He is involved in playing out in this. So even as we look at this, this idea of creation that, that the birds don't have to think about it, that God's already actively involved in their life, that God is, is taking a part in that. In fact, if we jump forward a, or a pack a, forward a few chapters into Matthew 10, Jesus talks about birds and sparrows again. In verse uh, 29 of chapter 10, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Here's Jesus, and he's talking about sparrows. And he, he, he basically says, at this point in time, if one of them even falls to the ground... He doesn't fall to the ground apart from the father, that God is involved and engaged in where the, the bird falls and when the bird falls and how the bird falls. Now, this can be both encouraging and a little troubling because what it does imply here and what Jesus is saying is, look, they don't sow, they don't reap. And I know when they need to eat and I know that when they're going to die. But the concept is he's not saying that sparrows won't fall. He's saying that sparrows will fall and I'll be fully aware and fully engaged when they do. So when he tells us to look at the birds of the air, it's not this concept that you're going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. Instead, he stops and he says, am I not engaged in the smallest details of that bird's life? And if I care for those birds, how much more so do I care for you than many sparrows? I am deeply involved in your life. So when hardships come, the principle here isn't that this hardship caught God off guard. Nothing happens apart from God. He is fully aware of the challenges and the struggles that you're facing. And he is to, to use a bird, a bird that just flies into a window or a bird that gets eaten by a cat or a bird that dies in the cold. I actually don't like it that he used birds. I wish he would have used something that was totally invincible. You know, it's like, oh yeah, he's got that thing. But he uses something that's very fragile. And he uses something that he has supported. And he says, I'm engaged in the smallest details of this bird's life. So one of the things that we see right here is that God is intimately engaged in the smallest details of some of the the most insignificant creatures. And yet that whole concept is is, is that he is there. I love the verses uh, in Colossians 1 um, when Jesus is... uh, or. Paul is writing about Jesus, and in Colossians 1, he, is, um, he basically says this whole concept is, is he is the image of the invisible God, Jesus himself, the firstborn of all creation. This is Colossians 1, starts with 15 and now 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
All things were created through him and for him. And listen to verse 17. And he is before all things and in him all things are held together. That by him, and in some of the other versions it says, by him all things consist, they exist. I am being held together, a group of molecules, because Jesus is doing that work right now. So when he says, stop and look at the birds, he's saying, I'm involved in the smallest details. As he said, not even the, hair, the hairs of your head are numbered. Not one of them falls without me knowing about it. He is active and involved in our life in a most intimate way. And this is what Jesus says. Do not, therefore, do not be anxious. Instead, look, look outside, get outside. Um, this, this concept that we should actually have nature itself is one of the teachers of our theology. He's saying, if you will study nature, if you'll study creation, if you'll study physics, you will find me there. And you will find that I am intimately involved in your life, even in the smallest details. That part right there, he then gives this example of of how he feeds the birds and how uh, the plants. uh, And I love that he used the word lilies. My last name is Lily. And not even, you know, King Solomon was dressed as fine as the lilies. I almost wore a suit today, but that got better of me. But the concept is, is I want to just take those two thoughts that Jesus lays out. And the first one is just a really quick rundown of, of one particular bird. And I, I love birds and I know a lot of birds. I'm an amateur um, bird watcher. And so there's a lot of things I love about nature. But there's a particular bird called the red knot. And the red knot lives down in South America part of the year. And then once a year, it, it migrates north and it does its nesting to the north. And then it migrates down to the south. It's its travel is 9,400 miles on average, flying from one place to another, a little tiny bird about the size of a robin. And it basically burns up all the energy that it has, all the fat that it's stored up, and it's running out of, of fuel. And so it stops in the Chesapeake Bay. And there in the Chesapeake Bay, just as that bird arrives, totally spent, are the horseshoe crabs down in the bay who have begun to lay millions, if not billions and billions of eggs. And those eggs are all over in the bay, just as these birds land. And they have a food that they love that is just laid out before them. God does that. He feeds them. He knows exactly what they need. He knows exactly when they're going to arrive. And he has it ready for them. And that's how God does this. So we can take an example of birds and go, oh yeah, he's got that down. And I could give illustration out of illustration of where God's just doing some really cool stuff. But then we get to the clothing part and this whole idea of how he clothes the flower, this idea that a flower is beautiful. And again, lilies, a tiger lily up in the Sierra Nevadas is a gorgeous orange, bright orange flower, speckled. It's just beautiful. And you literally, if you're hiking along, it'll catch your eye out of the corner of your eye. You'll notice it and you'll walk over and you're going, this is incredible. This is the kind of work God does. But the fact that he says that God clothes flowers is one thing. What about clothing us? This idea that this would transfer over us. And what I love about it is, is that God actually did this once. We know this story, the story of Adam and Eve when he does it. So we're going to jump over there really quick, just to Genesis chapter three, after they have taken of the fruit um, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they realize that uh, they're naked. God shows up. And in the process, in verse 20, it says, the man called his, na- his wife's name 
became Eve because she was the mother of all living. In verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, I don't know about you, but right off the bat, I think of uh, normally the flannel graphs of Adam and Eve in the garden. And there's usually some tree that's just distinctly placed to cover up the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And then when God finally clothes them, then they just take this piece of leather or hide or like a fur and they throw it over them. And they're always just wearing this one piece of fur, one piece of hide, a part of an animal's skin on them. And as I read this and started thinking about what Jesus is saying, he's going, no, you have to understand when I clothe something, I clothe it with greatness. Like the lily of the field is really, really one of the most beautiful things. And so you look at that and realize he's actually really good at this. In fact, the word garments there is the same word that's used for Joseph's coat, that many colored coat that all his brothers got jealous over. That is the same word. When it talks about the priestly tunics and God gives really specific detail of how the priestly garments are to be made, it's the same word of what God made the garments for Adam and Eve. Now, I'm not saying he made him priestly garments or a, a multicolored coat. What I'm saying that God cares about fashion somehow, that it's a, it's a representation of the work that he does, that it would be beautiful. That I think when he made the garments, that they were stunning. Here's the point. The theology all laid out is this. Do, do you need to be reminded of what Adam and Eve did before this? It's in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So before God got involved, they popped off some fig leaves, and they literally used that for clothes. There's a contrast here between what God does, what we do. This is the principle. This is the theology. This is our work and an effort for something that gets us all nervous so that we're trying to solve, we're trying to, to work out. And we go pull off a fig leaf and go, I've got this. This is going to be my fashion. This is how I'm going to get through this problem. And we do it like this. This becomes our clothes. Meanwhile, God comes out and he sews for them garments and I don't know what they look like, but when I start thinking about the other things God makes, I begin to wonder if we talk about birds, we talk about the lilies, the, the tiger lilies in the Sierras, or we talk about the, the different flowers that are, that are out there because flowers just go on and on. Even bugs and beetles are pretty, pretty cool and the butterflies. The, the fall colors, the idea that he does sunsets, that he does peacocks, that he makes babies, that he designs mountains and rivers and oceans and, and the stars and, and the, the universe. It's just like, that's the stuff he designs. And this is the stuff we do. We take something that he's made that's used for another purpose. And we suddenly grab and go, well, I'm going to grab this for clothes. And God says, no, why don't you let me handle this? That principle is what Jesus is talking about when he says, look, I've got this. I take care of these things. And so this first, therefore, of do not be anxious is understand the difference between what we do and what he does. It's so much better the way he does it. And again, just notice who is doing what. He takes care of the red knot bird. He takes care of Adam and Eve. He is actively involved and engaged on this. We do fig leaves. He does flowers and oceans and sunsets. It's pretty cool. The, the last thing on this one, and then we're jumping to the next verse, is this important part. 
that happens with God is that he will do his part. I love this, that when those red knots show up at the Chesapeake Bay, he's already done his part. He doesn't fail on his part. Even when Adam and Eve fail in obeying God, he shows up and he does his part in the middle of that. All the way to the sin in our own lives of the things that we do to mess up our lives, he shows up, he sends his son to die for us to actually solve the problem. Because we would throw a fig leaf at it, he comes up and says, I'm going to do far more than that and it's going to be a beautiful thing. Our trust should be in him. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, do not be anxious. Understand, go outside and look at what's happening out there. It will give you lessons about this whole story and how this is playing out. And he's done it again and again and again. He will do his part. Oh, you have a little faith. He finishes this section with that little, it almost feels like a dig. But, but this idea, if, this verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, oh, you of little faith? And we're in good company there because when we look at people of little faith, Even Martin Luther struggled with this whole thing of anxiety and depression. At one point, his wife even showed up all dressed up in black. And she was, he was like, what are you doing? Why are you wearing black? And she says, well, you're acting as if God is dead. It's like he's not even around anymore. And I figured I'd at least come stand with you at the funeral. And she's just mocking him because he's living as if God no longer is in control, that God no longer has this. And so she dresses up in funeral attire to say, look, we might as well go to God's funeral. In other words, it's, it's sarcasm. It's this idea that, that God hasn't left. Oh, you have little faith. Martin Luther is one who would be in that list. Spurgeon wrestled with anxiety. And as we go through the list, Jonathan Edwards, we can find some great theologians, some great scholars, even in the New Testament or the Old Testament, you can find out that, that David himself wrote whole Psalms, which were about anxiety. This idea that anxiety plagues us is important because we also have to talk about the fact that right now anxiety is at a highest level that it's ever been, ever been known and, and skyrocketing. And literally, it is a major problem in America and across the world. So much so that we have come up with medications that can actually address the problem of anxiety. That if you're really, really stressed out and you're really, your nerves are jangled and you just can't manage it anymore, you can go to your doctor and they can prescribe medications. Now, this should get you nervous right now. Because you're going to stop and go, well, what is this? Do, should we use medications or should we just trust in the Lord? And so some of you are in that situation where you're wrestling with that about how do I do this? How do I move forward? And yet I have to tell you a story that uh, Eugenie and I, one did, um, uh, several years ago, we went to Washington, D.C. with some other friends uh, for the national prayer breakfast. And at the time, uh, President Obama was the president and we were in Washington, D.C. And we got a chance to meet with several congressmen ahead of time and talk with them about different issues. And uh, we got a chance to tour some of the, the sites in Washington, D.C. And one morning and right at about 10 o'clock, we are in one of the congressional meeting rooms. And as we're there, Eugenie comes up to me and she says, I'm not feeling well. And I said, well, you just need to sit down. And she goes, no, there's something wrong with me. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with you? And she goes, 
I don't know. I feel like I'm about to die. And I was like, what do you mean you're about to die? Like your heart? And she goes, no, it's just this overwhelming feeling. By the time I got her back to the hotel room, she was in a fetal position. She was curled up and she spent the next two days there till I had to take her to the emergency room. And her body had completely changed. A, a basic chemical in her body had just gone awry and it totally betrayed everything about her about her mind, about how she saw the world. And one moment she was normal, Eugenie, and the next moment she was just all closed in with fear and dread, and we had no idea where this came from. The doctors took some looks, they found some imbalances, and they medicated. My point on this is, is that some of you may have some really strong mental health issues, and we don't want to say, don't see your doctor. We want you to actually be under the care of a doctor in that case. Those are things the Lord provides. But the mental health issue is a big one. The challenge is, is at the same time, if we just simply say, hey, if you've got anxiety, go medicate it. We've got another problem. And that problem is, is we're closing off with things that God is is trying to get us to realize that we should be turning to him towards. So we're talking about two different things in the middle of this, but I want to address it. That if in this case, you are not turning to God and you are not leaning into him, that's where you need to start. If you've got a severe, if this becomes a mental health issue with you, then I would say, go watch. We've got an equip you that is just on anxiety and they will talk through some of these. Reach out to our, our counseling teams and we would love to spend some time with you. If you are in a deep, deep place right now, Call us, talk to us, come see us. We would love to walk with you through some difficult times in this mix. So I, I just, it's a, it's a middle of this sermon, but I, I want to make sure that you understand Jesus is not letting you off the hook. He's saying you need to come to me. You need to lean into me. But at the same time, there's some difficult things here as well. So having said that, um, we're going to go to the number two. So this is verse 31. So as we look at it, uh, the do not be anxious. The first one was go outside. This one, do not be anxious. And he starts talking about the, the Gentiles. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we, what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So this idea here is just that simple. This is what we talked about in the very beginning, that the world looks to certain things to say, this is my security. This is what I've got to do. I've got to work to solve all these things. And God stops and says, don't be like the Gentiles. The Gentiles do that. They are everybody alive is going to be anxious and worried about these things. And he says, you're different. You are completely different. Everything that the Sermon on the Mount is talking about is talking about a world that's different from what the world teaches. And this way, Jesus stops and he literally says what it is. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, all the things that they're trying to do. But you, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. That this idea that the very first thing we should do is to seek there. God knows the troubles that are going to be in the world. He knows the troubles are going to come. He he does this and he shows up in the middle of this. And he wants us to be different about how we respond to them. That we would respond differently. 
We talked, uh, Darren talked last week about the real treasures, where the real light is and where the real king is. And this is Jesus saying, turn towards the real king. Don't chase after the things that you think you're going to be able to do. Don't go grab the fig leaves or the things that your, your arm might be able to think it can solve. This idea, though, of, of being different and seeking first the kingdom, it's, it's like, well, how do you do that? How do you seek first the kingdom? This verse is really well known. So I'm I'm actually not going to spend as much time on it. But I do want to give you a couple of steps. That seek first might be how you start your day. That the very first thing you do in your day is to seek God first. Wake up in the morning and pursue him. It might be that you just simply stop and say, where are my priorities in my life? And to simply look at how much time you spend on things. Like, for example, when it says you're not going to be be able to add one cubit to your life. You're not going to make your life longer by anything you do. But how many of you have diet and exercise routines and you're trying to to do these different things that are going to help you live longer? This is us trying to add a cubit to our life when God says, I know the day you were born. I know the day you're going to die. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not giving you full permission to like eat whatever you want and not diet, that kind of a thing. There are certain things that can, we'll, we'll get to that. The idea is this, is that when we seek first, if we look at our life and we just simply prioritize and take a look at the things that take up the most of our time, if you did a little inventory of your life, you would find you're spending time doing a lot of other things and sometimes trying to address, address the anxieties in your life, the things that have you worried. And in the meantime, God's saying, don't do that. Instead, come to me first. Make me the priority. Spend time in the words. Give him the biggest part of your life. Make him the priority. So we could go more and more on that. I want you to to stop and and understand this. The first, do not be anxious. He says, go look at nature. Go outside and to see the principles and truths that are there in creation. And now he's saying, number two, do not be anxious. Look to me. That literally God is saying, look into my face. Look to me. If you're in that moment of anxiety, come to me. Seek First, the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Well, as we jump into this, this last point, um, verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. That's the number three. Do not be anxious. Look to today. And I'm going to give you a different spin on this than you might be thinking, because I think it's pretty obvious what he's saying. It's not going to do you any good to worry about tomorrow. You got enough troubles in today. That's, that's exactly what it's saying. But I want you to understand what he's just said, that therefore in context, as we talk about the context, he stops and says, therefore, because you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, focus on today. That there's a connection about the troubles of today and his righteousness and his kingdom. And this concept is is quite simple. That there is troubles in today that his righteousness would want you to address. That there are troubles today that his kingdom would want you to move towards. And the idea is, is there are other people suffering today. There are other people in need today. That in this moment right now, for us to get worried about whether I have enough money for retirement, whether my $25,000 problem with, a, with real estate in the past is going to haunt me, he's going, do you realize you have challenges in your day right now? 
Last night, we got a text from my sister-in-law or my brother-in-law whose, whose wife was taken to the hospital with a high fever. And the whole challenge was she's got COVID. She, she's got a, some really bad symptoms and she's got some underlying health issues. And he texted and was very, very nervous about what was happening right then, right now. That happened last night. That is today's trouble. That is the thing where I stop and look at it and go, I'm not worried about the 25,000. I'm not worried about the challenges in, in so many other areas of my life. What I'm worried about right now is my family. And this is exactly what God is saying. He's saying the troubles of today are we're going to require you to be there. The righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount, if I will remind you, as it starts in chapter 5, it stops and says, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This, this righteousness that he's asking about is that we would be light. We would be moving towards others like he has moved towards us. Just as his kingdom does this, he asks us to step in and do similar things. And his righteousness is, yeah, don't be angry, don't lust, the divorce issues, oath, retaliation, love your enemies. I'm skimming the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Give to the needy. Pray fast. This is where God calls us and says, I actually want you to be part of my kingdom and part of the solution. And so as we read verse 34, this idea that therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Just last week and wrapping up the, the notes to this message, I uh, was talking to Mitch, one of our staff, and Mitch comes up to me and he goes, man, I just got the fourth call today of somebody who has been calling saying, we're in trouble. We don't know what to do. Is there any way your church can help? These are not people that come to our church, but literally on the side of the building, we had a banner up for quite a while that says, if you need help, please let us know. We would love to be there for you and help. And for a while there, we didn't hear anything, but guess what? The phone is ringing now. And Mitch got four calls just this last week on one day of people calling saying, can you please help? We don't know where to turn. They're turning to us. We are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And for us to live in anxiety and allow it to eat away at us is going to destroy us and make us dark. Our eye becomes dark. Instead, to do the opposite... To seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness says we live a different way. We become people that are part of the solution. So here's the, I want to wrap up with this idea. We, this year with the, the Thanksgiving offering, we switched it back. It had been the 50,000 days of Christmas. If you remember, we would raise $50,000 and then figure out if you would come forward with people that were in need in the community, we would give that money right back to you to have you go out and serve people in the community. And that process has been just phenomenal. It's been really fun to hear the stories of what's happened. This year, we actually gave out a ton of money, but at the end of the year, we still had $50,000 left over even after we've given out all the other monies. So in that process, we decided to raise the money for the youth programs, for the vans and everything else. And that's the Thanksgiving offering you've heard about. But the bottom line is we still have $50,000. We need you to come forward with those people that right now, today, you can think this person's in trouble. This person's in need. 
this person has anxieties on this issue. Is there a way that God could use me to step into their life to be part of the solution? I want to wrap up with a verse out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The bottom line is that too often we get up in the morning and we don't have time for God because of the challenges of the day. And the reality is that because of the challenges of the day, it should drive us to seek God first and foremost. That should be where we go, that we turn to him, that we look to his creation and the truths and the theology that we can find there, that we look to his word, that we look into his face, we seek him first. And then we look to the troubles of this day that God would actively use us to bring people to know and understand him. Because apart from that, the world is only going to get more anxious. We happen to have an answer. The Prince of Peace who can come and walk with us. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you so much for the principles and the truths that you have laid out in, in the, on the Sermon on the Mount. And Lord, yet so many of us are anxious about so many different issues. Lord, may we find that you have already been there that you are in the middle of the smallest insignificant details of this universe and that you are most involved and engaged in the details of our life. Lord, that we would remember that and be stirred by faith, that you would strengthen our faith to trust you, to lean into you, to look to you. And that, Lord, by that, we might shine bright and be there for the rest of the world who desperately needs to hear of your love and your grace. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.